0: rest of you can turn in your bulletins. You'll see an insert in there with John chapter 20 printed on the front and back there. Uh, you can also turn there if you prefer in a Bible or on your phone. Uh, as you're turning there, um, I'm curious how you feel about going to the dentist. Uh, some people really dread going to the dentist because they know that they're just not brushing their teeth or flossing as much as they should. Um, according to the Internet, uh, 50 to 80 percent of adults have general anxiety about going to the dentist. So that's like the vast majority of this room. Um, and then 36 percent of adults have what's called dentophobia, uh, which would be a severe anxiety around going To the dentist, and 12% have an extreme fear. And I guess of these, you know, 36% or maybe of the 12%, it just they're so afraid that they won't even go to the dentist because it's just too much for them to bear. They would rather deal with uh, the the ramifications of that with their teeth than to face their fears. Um, But as I think back to a kid, this was totally the way that I was. Um, On a on a good day, I would brush once a day. But then the week of my dentist appointment, I would brush two to three times a day. I would never floss, but suddenly I would start flossing to the point to where your gums are bleeding. It's the worst. Um, But uh, going to the dentist can be so daunting because it feels like the dentist is like the ultimate judge of our teeth. And we want to prove that when we go and sit before that dentist, that that we're okay, that our teeth are fine, um, that we don't have any problems. There's no cavities here. Uh, No receding gum line, no no teeth grinding issues. Um, We feel like we need to clean ourselves up and get it together in order to be there. And sometimes we treat God like this. Um, And we can especially feel this way leading up to maybe an Easter morning church service where maybe we're dressing a little bit nicer than normal. Uh, Maybe we're telling our kids if we have them, hey, it's Easter Sunday at church. Uh, let's be on your best behavior. Maybe there's some bribery involved to get them to sit through the entire service. Um, but we, we want to show up and just say that, we're hey, we're good. No problems here. Everything's fine. Um, it's the same way that we think about trying to clean our teeth before we go to the dentist. We think we need to clean ourselves up and to fix our problems before we come to Jesus. Um, because deep down we fear that we can't bring our real selves ...and our real problems before God... ...or else He'll reject us. All right. what if... ...rather than Jesus rejecting us... ...because of our real problems... ...what if it was in these real problems... ...that He actually moved towards us? Uh, We're looking at chapter 20... ...of John's Gospel this morning. And it's Easter morning. We're going to see that the tomb of Jesus is empty... ...that He's risen from the dead... And then we're going to look at the first three people that the resurrected Jesus visits. So I'm going to read John 20. I'm just going to read the first ten verses for us. We'll reference the rest of the passage as we go. John 20, beginning in verse 1. Now On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. And oh, how we need to hear from you this morning. Would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts that we might hear from you and know you and be transformed. So, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to see that the resurrected Jesus moves towards us in our real problems And we're going to see this specifically in our passage as he moves towards the weeping, the fearful, and the doubting. Those will be our three headings this morning. So first, we see the resurrected Jesus move towards the weeping. All right, the first ten verses of this passage, they sort of set the context for us. The empty tomb has been discovered um, by Mary Magdalene, by Peter, and by John. That's the, the other disciple, it says, the one whom Jesus loved, who is the author of this. Jesus is no longer sealed in the tomb where he was buried there three days earlier. He has risen. He was actually dead. Now he's actually alive. It's not a myth. It's not a spiritual resurrection. It's not a hoax. It's a real, physical, bodily resurrection. And what does Jesus do immediately after his resurrection? He appears to a woman named Mary Magdalene. Look at verse 11 in your passage. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Okay, so Mary Magdalene is weeping at the tomb. And she's sad very beautifully and simply because she misses Jesus. Um, She thinks that he is dead and that his body has been stolen, which was actually somewhat common during this time. And Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a history. Upon first meeting, she was a demon-possessed woman. And Jesus met her and drove those demons out of her and she began following Jesus. And it's likely that she came to the tomb on this morning to complete uh, these customary burial uh, preparations on Jesus. but, But she discovers that he's gone. And she's heartbroken. And she speaks to these two angels about it. And then Jesus appears to her. She doesn't recognize him initially. And he asks, why why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? She thinks he's a gardener, asks where Jesus has been placed. She's sad. And What does Jesus do? Um, He says her name in the way that only he said it. Mary. And instantly, by the way that he said her name, she knows it's Jesus. And then he goes on to tell her, "Don't, don't cling to him. That he hadn't yet ascended back to the Father. But go and tell the disciples... This good news. All right, zoom out. How does the resurrected Jesus treat a woman who is sad? He comforts her. Uh, This is the first recorded action of his resurrection in John's gospel. And he is comforting the sad. And Easter is a happy morning. But if we're really honest, there is a lot in life to be sad about. Um, As the writer Anne Lamont says, she says, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Um, There are brothers and sisters at at Covenant Presbyterian Church and at the Covenant School in Nashville right now who are just less than two weeks past the tragic shooting that occurred at their school. And, And somehow they are gathering this morning to celebrate the resurrection while also mourning the loss of family members and friends. And that one can feel like a sadness that's just too much to bear. Um, There are other sources of sadness just woven in to our everyday lives. Uh, The death of someone you love. Um, Trying to pick up the pieces after a divorce. Uh, Getting your head around a new uh, life-altering medical diagnosis for you or someone you're close to. Uh, Losing your job without any advance warning. Not having enough money to pay the bills this month again. Um, Dealing with depression uh, that just feels so dark and unshakable. Like the cloud just won't leave you. Uh, Getting bullied at school. Um, Feeling at odds with a close family member or friend. Um, We are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Much of this life is sad. And what does the resurrected Jesus do with sad people? He moves towards them and comforts them. Um, And he comforts Mary Magdalene with his presence. He says her name and only the way that he said it. He's present with her. But there is this deeper comfort in the fact that his resurrection means that the sad things of this world do not have the final word. Because the resurrection guarantees a new ending to the story. It's the ending that's foretold in Revelation chapter 21 where John says this, that he, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and that death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so the resurrected Jesus moves towards us in our weeping and the fact of his resurrection means there will be a day when we are no longer sad resurrected Jesus moves towards real people with real problems, including those who are sad and weeping. What about the fearful? What about the fearful? We see the resurrected Jesus move towards the fearful. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. All right, so the disciples in this snapshot, they're afraid, and they're afraid of the Jews. So they're hiding. What, what are they going to do to, to hit them as followers if Jesus is dead? And now they're alone without a leader. Um, in the World War II book, Ghost Soldiers, it's about uh, the rescue mission that was tasked Uh, to save the American prisoners of war that were the last survivors of the Bataan Death March in the Philippines. And the book covers both um, the the rescue mission that was sent out to rescue these prisoners of war, but also the whole backstory of how these American soldiers became prisoners of war and what it looked like for those months and years awaiting their rescue. And uh, I'm going to read you just the description of the actual moment of surrender where uh, the U.S. general in charge of this group of soldiers turns himself over in this discussion with the Japanese general and surrenders all of his troops uh, to uh, the imperial army. It says, quote, General King understood that he was utterly without leverage. Even as they sat conversing, he could hear the rumbling of the Japanese artillery. Every minute spent dallying in fruitless negotiations spelled further death for his men. He had no choice but to surrender unconditionally. In lieu of a sword, he removed his forty-five caliber pistol and set it upon the table at approximately half past twelve. Baton had fallen. General Edward King was captive of the imperial army. And so as the general had gone ahead, literally journeyed ahead up to the Japanese lines to, to surrender his army... The rest of the U.S. Army was scattered about in the jungle, hiding, waiting, not knowing what's going on. And then word starts to trickle out that the general had surrendered on their behalf. And so you have all these troops hiding out on their own, all alone, suffering, many of whom are on the brink of death, and they're catching word of the surrender. And so the writer highlights one soldier as he receives news. It says, quote, When he received the news, Edward Tommy Thomas had absolutely no idea what to do, where to go, how to comport himself. Surrender was not on the technical or emotional map of the U.S. Army, nor was it a subject that had been discussed in his training. The word was never mentioned. And so here this, here's a soldier. He, he has no leader now, no general. He surrendered. He was not trained for this. He's at the mercy of the Imperial Army. And so the book then recounts all these U.S. soldiers... ...literally coming out of hiding in the jungle... ...getting on this main road that led straight towards the Japanese... ...finding anything white that they could wave as a flag of surrender... ...and begin walking towards the Imperial Imperial Army... ...Trying to surrender themselves... ...having no idea what is ahead. It is a vulnerable thing... ...to be on a mission... ...and to lose your leader... And to not know what's next. Um, This is where the disciples found themselves after they thought Jesus was dead. He didn't bring that immediate political power and reign like they were expecting. And now they felt like they were just at the hands of the enemy. Um, They're scared, they're confused, and they're vulnerable. They're hiding. How does Jesus move towards them in our passage? He comes through a locked door, greets them, shows them His wounds to prove that it's really Him, and tells them, hey, the mission's not over. That He was sent by the Father in that same way, He's now sending them out on mission. And He doesn't just give them this big mission to continue, but He empowers them to do it. He breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit, telling them that, Essentially that even after he ascends back to the Father, that even then, they're not alone now and they won't be alone in the future, but he's going to give him the spirit to be with them as they move forward on the mission that he's called them to. Uh, For you, what's the thing that wakes you up at 3 a.m. and sends you churning, unable to go back to sleep? might be finances, health. Children, a parent, a relationship, employment, the future. Um, In that 3 a.m. darkness of night, that fear can feel so overwhelming. It can send us spiraling. And part of why it sends us spiraling is that we feel so alone in it. Uh, My children... Um, I won't name the specifics, Uh, I won't give specific names, but a few of my children especially do not like thunderstorms. So you can imagine what our household has been like these past couple days. It has not stopped raining. Um, My wife and I know if there is any chance of thunder or lightning overnight that we can expect our entire household to end up in our room, in our bed that night. So we just prepare for it. And so at any given moment, if we start to hear thunder in the course of the night, Soon enough, the kids start trickling into our room and into our bed. And there's something amazing that happens. If one of our children is alone in their bed and they see the flash of lightning outside, or they hear the sound of thunder, there's no way they're going to sleep. They're worried. They're upset. As soon as they come into our room, uh, the flashes of lightning continue. The sound of thunder continues. But there's something about being with with mom and dad and, of course, our 50-pound dog. There's something about all of us being in bed together that instantly they fall asleep and sometimes start snoring. They're cashed out. Of course, Aaron and I are no longer sleeping at that point. But there's something about being with mom and dad that means whatever's happening out there, it's going to be okay. Because mom and dad are right here. And so they're sound asleep. What does the resurrected Jesus do with people who feel vulnerable and afraid? He comes so close to them that he breathes on them and then he gives them his spirit. Spirit to be with them so that they will never be alone. As you read the scripture starting all the way in the Old Testament, uh, the command, do not fear, is almost always followed up with, for I will be with you. In the midst of our fear, God has given us His Spirit to be with us and to never leave us. And the resurrection of Jesus guarantees that to be so. The resurrected Jesus, He moves towards Real people with real problems, including those who are afraid. We've seen the weeping, we've seen the fearful. What about the doubting? How does the resurrected Jesus move towards the doubting? This is the third visit for Jesus. Look at verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay, so Thomas is doubting that all this actually happened. Don't pass over that too quickly. This is Thomas, the disciple who had seen and known Jesus, who knows the other disciples had heard firsthand throughout this last week what had happened, yet he still didn't believe. He thinks they may have seen a ghost. He needed more evidence. Um, Thomas likely would have believed everything about Jesus up to this point. I mean, he was a disciple in close contact with the other disciples. And yet he's still doubting. And if someone in Thomas's situation can still have doubts about the faith, this means you are not crazy if you have doubts about the faith. Um, common questions and doubts that I hear people process... Um, how do we know if the Bible's accurate? Wasn't it written by humans a really long time ago? Didn't, didn't we kind of lose some meaning in all that? Um, did a physical resurrection really happen? Or maybe it was just like an inspiring story or a myth or, or kind of just a spiritual resurrection, similar to what Thomas was wondering. That's really common. Uh, a really common source of doubt that I hear, how can a good God allow such terrible suffering to happen in our world? And those are all really important questions, all of which the Bible has answers for. And maybe those are some of the very questions that you struggle with, that, you, that causes you to have doubt. The question for you this morning, if, if those are some of your doubts, is where do you go with your doubts? When I was working in college ministry, it was not uncommon for students to come to me and tell me they, were, they had questions or doubts about Christianity. And um, because of their doubts, what they thought they needed was time away from the church time away from their Bible study, time away from studying the Bible, to just kind of distance themselves and they just needed to to go and to figure things out. And that never proved to be a good direction to go with doubts. Because it was actually in the community of believers, in the community of the church, where they would encounter and be reminded of this news that Jesus does not shame you for your doubts, but he actually moves towards you in the midst of your doubts. Um, He moves towards Thomas here. He gives physical proof. He says, touch. Feel it. It's real. And the risen Jesus stands there next to him and says, Don't disbelieve, but believe. If you're here this morning and you're doubting, know that you are welcome here with your doubts and your questions. And here's the nudge bring those doubts to Jesus because he's already moving towards you in the midst of them. Real people. Real problems, weeping, afraid, doubting, and the resurrected Jesus moves towards them. And this should not surprise us, because this was the pattern of his entire life and ministry. This is what the very mission of God has looked like from the beginning, when we, rather than being with God, turned away from God and ran in the other direction, thinking that life did not exist with God, but real life existed away from Him, doing things our way on our own terms. And when we turned away from God and chose to do things our own way, it ruined everything. Ruined our lives. Caused all kinds of fracture in the world, in our relationships. It just made a mess out of everything. And yet, as we are running in the opposite direction, having just messed everything up, God didn't write us off. But He comes running after us. He moves towards us. And Him moving towards us in our sin is actually the one thing that saves us from our sin because Jesus gets so near to us in our sin that He actually takes it from us. He reaches out, He takes it from us and puts it on Himself on the cross and says, you're not going to pay for that even though it's yours. I'm going to take that and pay for it for you. And in exchange, I'm going to give you my righteousness. So when the Father looks at you, He's not going to see all that sin. I'm taking that away. But instead, He's going to look at you and see my perfect righteousness. That's how close He gets to us. He invites us to come to Him with our real problems and to give Him our sin. And in exchange, He gives us His righteousness. And that's actually the very message that John wanted his readers to know and believe even with these accounts. Look at the very end of your passage. Verse 30. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I have a friend who is a great question asker. And one time we were together and he asked me, where are you today? And it struck me as an odd question because I was literally standing right next to him when he asked me this. I was thinking geographically and very literally, where are you? But it was a bigger question than that. It was sort of the meta question of like, Jonathan, where are you today? And so it forced me to do sort of this quick scan of my thoughts and my emotions and how I was doing, and kind of reflect on on where I was and how I was in that moment. Um, it is very easy to duck in and out of an Easter worship service at a church and not wrestle with this question. But if the resurrection is true, then we need to answer it. Where are you this morning? Um, are you in a place where you feel like your problems are just too much for Jesus? Like your sin is just too much for Jesus? And your problems and your sin are too much, not just for Jesus, but for his people and for his church. Um, it is in those very real, specific things that you're experiencing in which Jesus moves towards you. And he does not offer a quick fix for your problems. That is not what's on offer. He doesn't come and promise that your sadness is going to go away today. He doesn't promise that you're instantly going to feel um, courageous and powerful and not alone in the face of your fears. He doesn't promise that you're never going to doubt again in this life. But he does come near to you and promise himself to you. And promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. Think back to how we started. uh, About our fears of going to the dentist. Um, There's this great irony in feeling like our teeth are in too bad of shape. To go and see the dentist. Um, The irony is that the dentist is the only one who can properly clean our teeth and make them right again. Uh, You see the irony in feeling like we have too many problems or too much sin to come to Jesus. Because he's actually the only one who can properly clean us and heal us and make us new again. And his resurrection guarantees it. So the invitation for you is, won't you come to him this morning? As you are, as a real person... With real problems and believe, so that by believing you may have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news that the resurrection is true, that Jesus, you are risen indeed. And we thank you and praise you that in your resurrection power, you come to us in our weeping, you come to us in our fears, you come to us in our doubts, you come to real people. With real problems. And you give us real hope. Father, Son, and Spirit. Help us to believe more deeply today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.